Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the America of America podcast. This week, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. This is a topic that is a little bit more uh, personal, not really as personal as, say, the reflections on the Oklahoma City bombing. There is a little bit more history and narrative uh, baked in. But the basis of this week's episode is a little bit less of, say, reading books or you know doing research online or through the library. And this is more of stories that have been told to me um, through members of my family, and I want to retell them to you because I think they're important not only from a historical aspect, but I think that they're just stories that really should be told. So this week, we're going to focus on the the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in World War I, and specifically the soldiers from Oklahoma that participated in that campaign. And we're also going to go into a little bit broader um, retelling of Oklahoma's participation in the Great War. And I'm going to add in some, uh, some obviously personal memories, as I imagine many of these listeners of you guys also have. So with that, we're going to dive in, and I'm glad that you're here, and uh, let's get started. morning, everybody. Welcome to the America of America podcast. I'm Will Milam, and I'm excited to get started. So like I said in the cold open, this episode has a little bit more to do with uh, some family history and uh, well, family history for anybody, because most Americans have at least a couple generations on either side who were somehow involved in the First World War. The idea for this episode actually coincides with the idea for the podcast. This was the original episode I had planned, and it was the first episode that I did some research for, but it didn't turn out to be the first episode, and I decided early on that I wanted this to be the start of a larger narrative. But I got the idea from this episode a couple years ago when my cousin Jim Milam, uh, who's very involved in the broader family Facebook page, posted a photograph from a military cemetery in France and he found a grave of a relative of ours and it was incredible because you know there was there you had this this massive really haunting uh, images of the just incredible amount of gravestones in France from World War one especially of American soldiers and my cousin Jim went all the way over there and picked his way around the uh, cemetery to find uh, our cousin's gravestone and it kind of filled me with a lot of guilt considering how many times I'd been in the country and I never made the trip. I didn't even know that we had a family member buried there. And, you know, it made me think um, how many of our family members have actually been able to make that trip out there. And it made me very appreciative of him. And it also made me appreciate the importance of keeping that history alive, of the importance of telling our cousin's story. And in doing so, telling the story of all the young men and women who served our country and went and died overseas and whose bodies were never able to be brought back to their homes. And so I want to give a little bit of a, of an ode to that dead today. Though I'd like to get into my opinions on the causes and forces that led to the Great War from 1914 to 1918, obviously this is not the proper place to do that. Um, there's, there's lots of good history written on this subject. There's lots of good podcasts on this subject. So 
I'm going to leave that to them and uh, stay away from the ultra crepidarianism. But suffice it to say, the United States entered World War I at the latter stage of the war. In conversing with my cousin Jim, the first thing that Jim really wanted to emphasize is that though Oklahoma and Texas are often thought of as rivals, which of course I've contributed to plenty enough on this podcast if you've been keeping up with any semi-regularity, in a lot of ways, Oklahoma and Texas are also comrades in kind of a larger, larger narrative. And this was definitely the case in World War I, where a lot of the units took from both Texas and Oklahoma. The first of these divisions was the 36th Arrowhead Division. And the insignia of this division is a T enclosed by an arrowhead. And this is representative of both Texas and Oklahoma. The arrowhead representing the American Indian culture of Oklahoma, while the T representing Texas. And this division was made up of Oklahoma and Texas National Guard units. Fun fact, this division is actually still around and was called up by uh, Governor Abbott as of a year ago. So it's still a very relevant part of the Texas National Guard. The second Oki division was the 90th Infantry Division. This division also still exists in the present day as the 90 Sustainment Division, 90th Sustainment Division, excuse me, which includes soldiers largely from Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. But in the Great War, this was the division that a young man named Charles was drafted into. Charles was in an interesting situation. He was a young man, and he had just been married on a cattle ranch in New Mexico, and previously had been educated in Claremore, Oklahoma, so being educated beyond many of his contemporaries who were also drafted into the army. Unfortunately for Charles, when he got to training, there had been men in his platoon that had been trained to go to the front for seven months. Charles only received two months of training before setting off for Europe. However, by all accounts, Charles excelled in the army. Within four months, he had been promoted twice to a non-commissioned officer rank of corporal. Additionally, he was placed in a signals platoon attached to an infantry regiment rather than straight into the infantry. So his education and ability to apply skills learned were also recognized, and members of this signals platoon were required to perform some pretty technical work with those signals, also while under fire. Here, so, though Charles was not chomping at the bit to get into the military, if you remember, he did not sign up, he was drafted, he was pretty into the fight once he was actually in. He wanted to do his job the best he could, as many young men and women did. According to letters written to his older brother Bartley by Charles, his comrades fell in battle, but he shirked nothing, always wanting to help anyone with anything, and showing courage under fire as he was hit twice by artillery in two separate battles, leaving the protection of their bunker during heavy bombardments in order to repair the communication lines that kept many of those soldiers alive. The first time this happened, his partner was killed and Charles's equipment was holed by shrapnel. Unfortunately for Charles, several weeks later, he wasn't as lucky and he was killed while attempting to repair a communication line. My cousin Jim has spent a lot of time researching Charles's life and has found through reading the battalion officer's biography that there was a lot of shelling that day and that the regiment had made significant advances overnight and during the daytime when Charles was killed. 
and that they were relying heavily on their telephone lines to coordinate the artillery support and medical assistance. So Charles died attempting to reestablish that communications lifeline, lifeline, excuse me, to keep the battalion alive. So for all intents and purposes, Charles died a real war hero. And now Charles is laid to rest at the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery in France with over a thousand of his other comrades and was left almost to be forgotten by everybody, including us, his family, um, though that might, be not, might not be by everybody until my cousin Jim, thankfully, was able to find that grave a couple years back and was be able to, being able to begin this, this journey of rediscovering Charles Milam's life. And though Charles Milam is certainly a hero, he is heroic in a way that thousands and hundreds of thousands of other seemingly normal unnamed men and women were at that time. Um, the millions of soldiers that were involved from the United Kingdom, from the overseas territories of Canada and Australia, and especially the, the Indian Army, uh, the armies from other allied nations, France and the United States, the millions of people who were affected by the Great War and whose heroism goes unwritten in the history books but survives only in our memories, which is why it is so important to keep these memories alive. And as Memorial Day approaches, I think that it's important for us, especially on days like that, that we remember the dead, that we remember the dead in the war and the dead in battle and the casualties of war and the innocent civilians whose lives were affected and those on the home front who performed vital services of keeping the army together, that we need to remember them in our thoughts and prayers that it's important to see the reasons that we can celebrate these holidays. And we must also remember the survivors of the war. The men and women who came back from continental Europe did not come back the same people as this was the first really modern war in that weapons of just unseen destruction that were employed on not just the the combatants, but also the civilians and the, the people that came back just were not the same people that they left as. Uh, we can see this obviously in culture, things like the Lost Generation, a, a disillusioned group of artists or if we pay attention to the literature of that time, there's a famous Ernest Hemingway short story called Soldier's Home that has to do with uh, a young man from Oklahoma who came back from World War I just seemingly not being able to fit in with the rest of society. Now, though the story may be true, it can also be true that Ernest Hemingway was largely full of, well, full of crap with a lot of his, uh, his recollections of World War I, but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of young men and women did experience some really life-changing events, and it's important to remember those stories and to keep those people in our thoughts and prayers. And finally, we must remember the casualties <clears throat> of this war that came on later, many years after the fact. In the mass demobilization of forces, and no matter what the uh, what country it was, whether it be the United Kingdom or the United States, that flooding of the labor market would create some labor tensions as well as just some psychological tensions, you know, that you hear stories of highly, highly trained servicemen and women who come back to normal life and seem unprepared to lead a normal life, even though they are in fact very skilled and highly trained. And in this instance, we're thinking of a lot of people who just came back from the most hell-raising and hair-raising event in human history up to that time, and who came back with their weapons and with all of their ammo and artillery from the war, as a lot of these individuals were able to take home. If you think back to the, the Red River Bridge War episode when I talked about the 
Oklahoma National Guard essentially showing up in their World War I uniforms. That's true, and they were also probably carrying their World War I weapons as they carried them home. Another group of individuals that oftentimes get overlooked that really need to be given special attention were the African-American soldiers in World War I, who, though the United States military was segregated and though they came home to a segregated Oklahoma, fought bravely for their country and many died and all were affected, and many gave all that they could for the cause. And most sadly, and to the horror of many, coming back from the war wasn't even necessarily the last battle. Because like I said earlier, because those weapons were brought back from Europe and just kept uh, in the domestic United States, a lot of people still had these weapons, and it would only take a spark to set off their use a couple years later in Oklahoma. For, as we all know, we're entering the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, and many of those African-American uh, veterans of World War I who brought their weapons back could put their weapons up after World War I and only have to take them back out to defend themselves when the African-American areas of Tulsa were being assaulted by a white mob. And tragically and horrifically enough, the white mob's weapons used to burn down the Greenwood area of Tulsa also probably largely came from those weapons that were used against the central powers in World War I. And if you'll join us next week, we're going to dive into the details and the timeline of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 on its 100th anniversary. And with that, I'll see you next week. This is the America of America podcast, and I'm Will Milam. Thank you very much for listening.